Welcome to Episode 4 of Sally's Performing Arts Lab Podcast. I'm your host, Sally Adams, and I've taught people how to produce original work for the stage for 30 years. If you go to sallypal.com, you'll find my blog as well as my podcast. You'll also find Sally Pal on SoundCloud and iTunes and soon on Stitcher. Please be sure and share the blog and the podcast. I really appreciate the shares and suggestions. Today's episode is a road trip interview with Emily Adams. You'll hear plenty of ambient noise from the car and the road. I hope it won't interfere with your enjoyment of the podcast. Sally Pal episodes are posted on Monday evenings, so spread the word. I want to help you learn to produce and direct your own shows. It's what I do, and you can too. With you in it Every day I want to stop And think about you I think we're recording right now But it's also picking up car sounds So if you're hearing car sounds Apologies I am currently driving to my new home In Washington, D.C. This is Sally Pal. You're listening to Sally's Performing Arts Lab, and today I'm interviewing Emily Adams, E-M-I-L-E-A-D-A-M-S. And full disclosure, she is my daughter. That is very true. We sound the same. I'm extremely sorry about that. (laughs) That is the one problem you're going to have, is telling the two of us apart. This is Sally. I'll be asking the questions. This is Emily. I sound significantly less professional. That is so not true. (laughs) I can sound very unprofessional. I'm sure you can. I hear it all the time. Hey! Okay. So we're on a road trip together, which is why you're going to hear a little ambient noise of car driving in the background. If you hear this squealing of tires, don't don't edit it out. (laughs) Wait, no, it's a recording. They can't call 911. Emily has a lot of experience producing her own work. Not only is she a published poet, she's also a slam poet with a lot of performance experience. She's a published poet. She's also a published author. In addition to that, she's a nationally produced playwright. She's had her plays produced in Oklahoma as well as in Washington, D.C. at the Kennedy Center. And she has since been produced in fringe festivals and summer stage and several other venues. Emily actually has a lot of experience, much like her brother, producing her own work. And we're gonna talk about one work in particular where I think she would probably say she cut her teeth as a producer. We're going to talk about the show Fever Dream. I'm going to let Emily tell the story, and I'll ask a question or two along the way. Do you want to do it that way? Yeah, and if you have questions or I'm not elaborating because I know that you were there for Fever Dream. I was. I made shorthand some stuff, and I may be doing it unconsciously because I am driving. So if I need to expound on some things, stop me, and I'll expound. Okay, so Emily is going to tell the story of a play that she produced in the summer of 2012 at Tulsa's Equality Center. The name of the play is Fever Dream. Fever Dream is the second play that I produced that was my own original work. I do not produce plays, and this is going to make me sound very snobbish, but I do not produce plays written by other people. I have a production company, but it's just for my own work. That's mostly born out of the frustration that happened with Fever Dream itself. Fever Dream is the second play that I produced that was my own. Uh, The first play was a play called Dear Diary. It was a one act. It was about 45 minutes long-ish. And I produced it to raise money for the Oklahoma Youth 
LGBT Center, Open Arms Youth Project, props to them, in Tulsa, and I produced that when I was 16, 15, yeah. somewhere in there. I, was, I think you were probably 15. I was pretty young. I had a ton of help on that one, and I didn't feel like that was my first time actually being a producer, whereas with Fever Dream, I really felt that it was. We'll start at the very beginning, a very good place to start. I wrote Fever Dream in a month. It was a uh, hundred pages, roughly. And I wrote it in a month. If you write three pages a day, you'll write a play in a month. But um, this was an event where you were pushing yourself. You were really writing for eight hours a day. I, I was. This was in conjunction with the National Novel Writing Month, which I participate in every year, where you write a, a novel in 30 days. They had an additional thing in April, National Novel Writing Month in November. And they, for a while, had a thing in April that was called Script Frenzy. And during Script Frenzy, people will be encouraged to write a 100-page script in 30 days. Script Frenzy, unfortunately, was shut down because National Novel Writing Month could not support both the November Novel Writing Program and the April Script Writing Program. I still write scripts, it just takes me a little bit longer now because I don't have that external support of the Script Frenzy Program because that, that is online and was done with lots of different people. And it's nice to know that you're writing a script with 2,000 of your closest friends. But you're not writing a script together. No, you're writing your own script, but you have the support of people around you who are also writing their own scripts. Plus, with National Novel Writing Month, that's the encouragement to write 50,000 words in a month, and that's not a novel. Whereas 100 pages, that is a complete script. It's actually a little bit longer than a complete script, Yeah, but for a straight play. I can't believe I write straight plays. I don't do straight things ever. It's the only straight thing you've ever done. The only straight thing I do is write straight plays. <laughs> uh, As opposed to musicals. Yes. In the theater world, a straight play is not a play about people who are straight. It's actually a play without music. God, I'd never write plays if that was true. Well, the Fever Dream Fever is... Fever Dream's got gay people. But it's not specific to no. the gay experience. No, but back to Fever Dream. I wrote Fever Dream in a month, and Fever Dream is an existentialist nightmare. <laughs> That's fair. When I first started writing it, I had in my head that I was going to write something absurdist, because I had recently read Waiting for Godot for the first time, which remains one of my favorite plays, and I was in the middle of Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead, and I thought to myself, I really want to write an absurdist play. I like the imagery, I like the idea that it can be anything on stage, I think they're interesting, I think that's really cool. Then I started trying to write it, and I realized, I can't write absurdism, because I as a person need to have a plot thread. So there is a plot thread in Fever Dream, but it's extremely loose until the very end when I just kind of pull the thread and everything comes together. I would love to see that play produced professionally. Okay. Yes. Yeah, that'd be awesome. Fever Dream has seven characters in it. It's a seven-person cast, and all of the characters are on stage the entire time except for Wilson, who leaves extremely briefly during Act One. Everyone else is on stage the entire time until the very end. You, like your brother, play with the theatricality of that because you literally have Wilson go out to the snack bar in the theater. Yeah, I have him leave the stage. But you have other characters he does, he go, go to the snack bar. I do. it During intermission, I have my characters go to the snack bar and interact with the audience in character. I also encourage the audience to come up on stage during intermission to interact with the characters. Let's I'm do a, off track. a very brief review of the story. Like I said earlier, it's a seven-person cast. We have two main characters and five secondary characters. The two main characters are Wilson and Kinnear. And the story revolves around Wilson trying to figure out where he is. He knows he is somewhere where he is not supposed to be. 
I am using the pronoun he here. That is not to say that Wilson is male. All of these characters are written in such a way that they can be played by any gender, any race, any sexuality, with things written in the script to adjust to the actor's gender, sexuality, and race. And age. Any of the characters can be played by any age as well. That's been important to you in a lot of your playwriting. Yes. The story revolves around Wilson trying to figure out where he is, because he is now in this existentialist nightmare space. And when I designed the set, I set it up so it's a pyramid of chairs in the background, five-stepped pyramid with five chairs on it, so that the five secondary characters all can be sitting there and they won't have to be standing around. Then that pyramid and the stage surrounding it is decorated like a garage sale threw up on stage. Um, <laughs> I think that's in your notes, isn't it? It really is. It's, that's a note in the play. Wilson is aware that something terrible has happened, but he's not sure how it happened, what had happened, why he is where he is, and why it feels okay to be here. Kinnear is extremely relaxed. It follows those two characters as Kinnear essentially escorts Wilson through a series of vaguely non-connected conversations, talking about things as weird as Shakespeare's sexuality and what to do in a zombie apocalypse and the fact that Kinnear cannot count and into such subjects and through rather because there's it doesn't go from light to dark it goes light dark light dark light dark light dark through such subjects as what happens after we die and whether there is a god in the background are the five secondary characters that also offer their beliefs which are the first one is the author and the author is actually a stand-in for myself and the author sits at the top of the pyramid and questions what the characters are doing in any given time the character at the author's left hand is audience. The audience is an actual character in the play, and they are presented as a hipster... Can I say douche? Is that okay? I think that'd be okay. As a hipster douchebag, and because it's an absurdist show, and it was put in a warehouse, and I was thinking the only people who would come to see this, besides our friends and family, are going to be hipster douchebags. So I made a hipster douchebag character who actually ends up being a lovely character. At the author's right hand, as is only appropriate, is Merriam-Webster, who is a physical embodiment of Merriam-Webster's dictionary. He is called upon multiple times to provide definitions for words, and throughout the show begins developing his own personality, including a rant about how much he hates Wikipedia, which in my mind remains one of the best pieces of writing I've ever done. Then there is Symptoms. Symptoms is probably the only truly absurdist character in the whole shebang, because Symptoms is suffering from a bizarre disease. Nothing is actually happening to Symptoms. She's a bright and bubbly character, except for the aforementioned symptoms that keep showing up with her, such as that she has a Russian family living in her dresser, or that she can taste vowels, or just weird, 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 weird stuff that don't actually present as anything scary. It's just there to be like, look at this weirdo. This conversation has gotten way too dark. Symptoms, what are you up to? <laughs> um, then the final character, who is the one who actually ties the whole thing together, and no one believes me when I say it until they get to the very last act, the very last few pages is hat guy hat guy is a character who cannot stop buying hats and literally the only phrase that he says for 95 pages is i can't stop buying hats that is his only line said in multiple tones that's it every character on stage comes on with a hat and by the end of it hat guy is wearing seven hats so if that tells you anything about him yeah 
And those characters are there to provide commentary and conversation shift for our two main characters, but the whole thing centers on the two main characters. It is fairly prop light, fairly set light, despite the existentialist nightmare set. If another person was to put it on, they could literally do it with five blocks. Do they wouldn't need anything else. Yeah. Yeah. How did this all start? You sat down, because this is a podcast about producing your own work, and you were in the middle of script frenzy. Did you have an idea in your mind that you would be producing this yourself? I always have that in mind when I'm writing a play. I never write a play just for myself. I know lots of people can do that. I never, ever, ever go in with that attitude. I always go in with the attitude of I'm writing these characters for these actors and we're going to put it up. When you started writing Fever Dream, where did the idea come from? With every other play I've written, I can tell you exactly where the ideas come from because I drew from my own life. With Fever Dream, I have no freaking clue where that play came from. I think it you is may a, have dreamed it. I may have, but I don't remember my dreams, so I very easily could have just dreamed it and not remembered it, and it just came to me later in the form of that script. One of my favorite things I've ever written, and I have no idea where it came from. Let's say you have finished your script, so you've done your 30 days, mm-hmm. you've got a complete rough draft, every rough. first draft is rough. It was rough. Now what do you do? Uh, I don't look at it. Script Frenzy is in April. Um, I wrote it the previous year to when I produced it. I did not write it the same year that I produced it. Okay. So I wrote it in 2011. I set it aside. Three months later, I looked at it again, and I rewrote some stuff because I was far enough removed and had been working on some other projects to be able to do that. How do you know what stuff to cut when you're rereading it? Do you cut after you have people read it and you've heard it out loud, or do you do the cut before? I do the cut before, and then I do another cut after. So you cut before the reading. Mm -hmm. And I do some rewrites to make sure it was still up to readable length. I think at that point it got to be about 97 pages. So I cut three pages worth of stuff. And then you have people read it out loud. Who did you call? My family. I am extraordinarily blessed to have been born into a family of actors. I act and my brother acts and my mom acts and my dad acts and my sister acts. So I was very blessed to be born into that and I was also blessed because I was born into that to have a bunch of actor friends both old and young. So I called upon whoever I could think of for the first reading of your original work, you just want voices. They don't have to be perfect voices. They just have to be voices to read a thing out loud. I am of the belief that hearing it in your own voice in your own head or read aloud by your own voice in your bedroom, you will not hear what is wrong with your script. You really need to be able to hear a physical other voice reading it. So you could call on whoever you want. They don't have to be actors. I got lucky. If you just have people who can read aloud in a clear enough fashion, you're going to be able to hear your new script. And that's probably not a bad thing because sometimes if you have a really dynamite actor, they may add some things in the reading of it that aren't in the script, so you won't always get a great feel for the script. That's true. Mm -hmm. You want to know that the script holds up. That's true. I will say, I called upon an old teacher of mine, because I thought that he would be a good reader for the author, because I didn't want to read it myself, and he ended up playing part through the next reading and into the actual production as well. And he was really good. He was amazing at it. He was wonderful and funny too. He was very funny. It's a funny show. I mean, it's a comedy. As dark as it gets and as deep as it gets, it's a comedy. Yeah. 
Okay, so you have your first reading. At the end of your first reading, what are you asking people for? Well, I'll, I'll say this, throughout the reading, I am sitting there listening, and I have a red pen in my hands, and I am making my own notes throughout the reading. I have also handed out pens to the actors, and I've encouraged them to make notes throughout their readings. I seem to recall you always buy a box of red pens I for I always buy a box of red pens for my readings. I always buy a bunch of flimsy binders for my readings, and I write people's names on them, or character names, or whichever. That way you know whose notes they are. That way I know whose notes they are. You might have someone whose notes you don't understand and you would and want to contact. contact them as well, yes. I rarely have that, and I'll tell you why. It's because at the end of the first reading, I ask people to go through the script and tell me what notes they made. Not in detail, but just points. So that I can have my notebook in front of me and I can be writing down page 12, don't like word, switch. And then I could be like, page 12, don't like word, switch. And I can look through their script and see, oh, page 12, there's their more detailed note. How do you get your ego to step out of the way? Oh, my ego. I hit a nerve. No, I'll say this. I'm an extraordinarily sensitive person in that, not that I believe that my work is perfect, but that I worked hard on it. Now you're telling me it's terrible. You're hurting my feelings. Well, how do you step out of the way of that? I didn't for a long time. I mean... My recognition of my ego probably started happening during Fever Dream. I had to look at these notes that people had written down and not just verbally told me. I could set it aside for a second, give myself a moment to breathe, and look at it again and be like, that makes sense. Because my tendency is when someone tells me some criticism, I reject it out of hand. Like, it's my work. I worked hard. Good. Shut up. I'm getting better at that. Really, I'm trying to open myself up to it more. Do you find that you have to separate yourself from the work as it is? I can. My work is always intrinsically linked to me. I am a big believer in being honest with your written work. And because of that, it can get kind of raw in there. I have a monologue at the beginning of Act 2 of Fever Dream that Wilson does. It's a monologue taken right out of my life. And I didn't touch that thing from the first draft. It was ready. But because of that, it is all deeply tied to me, and I can't step out of it. It being raw does not mean it is good. And I can keep the emotion while making it good. And that's a hard thing to... It's such a hard thing to recognize. Because you believe that because it is your... Your emotion, feeling, experience, everything right on stage that it will be good. And it may not be. And you can fix that. You recently wrote a monologue for one of your brother's plays. Yes. It's a play that is an exploration of my brother and I's childhood. And I wrote the first two pages and I read it to my mother. And my mother, I, I read every single thing to her that I write. And I read those first two pages and I told her it's for this play that Will is working on. And I think it's, I think these two pages are pretty good and clever and funny. And she goes, but are they truthful? And I said, well, but they're good. And she says, but are they truthful? You cannot be clever in this in an attempt to be good and not make it real. So I rewrote. I rewrote. And I wrote the first ten pages. I rewrote them again. And I made them real. And I made them truthful. And I made them ten pages about being a liar. And how when you're a storyteller, 
and you grow up with abusive parents, you turn out to be a liar, and it's a difficult thing to extricate yourself from being a liar. Will got the pages and read them and said, this is the best thing you've ever written. And he was afraid they were better than what he had already written, which was pretty good. His play is going to be that's a dynamite play. It's so good. That speaks to being able to hear people that you trust. Mm -hmm. Being able to hear that criticism. And it hurt. It hurt when she told me those two pages are no bueno. Oh, it hurt. But I swallowed it, and I looked at it, and I thought, she's right, and it sucks that she's right. They weren't anything. If you're not honest, you're nothing. That's interesting. So that brings us back to... You've done your your first edit on your rough draft. Mm-hmm. You've had your reading. Then you do your second edit. And then I set it aside again. I set it aside for another probably three, longer than that. I think I set it aside for six months at that point. I thought to myself, oh, this is just no good. I got so many edits the first time around. This is just never going to be a good show. Blah, 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 pity party. So I set it aside for six months. And then I was going through my documents one day. And I find it. And I'm like... This is a good play. What's this doing here? (laughs) And I had a second reading, and I had at that point grown quite a bit as a writer because I had gotten more things produced, and I had gotten more criticism. I'd finished writing my first actual novel at that point. I was just ready to do it. I submitted the play for Summer Stage, um, which is the Tulsa Play Festival. But Summer Stage at that point was kind of notorious for not doing a lot of original work. They have since fixed that, and they do a lot of original work now, and I'm very impressed with how much original work they do now. But at that point, they were doing a lot of fun, whatever, musical, everyone knows this play, stuff like that. And I submitted it, and they said no. My brother and I have the same thing that we do when someone says no to a play that we submit somewhere. We submit our play to one or two competitions, and we should submit it to more. We submit our plays to a couple of competitions, and they reject us. Disappointed. Disappointed. For whatever reason. My brother and I write weird stuff. They reject us, and our mentality, you're gonna have to bleep me here, I'm sorry. It's the only way that I can do this. And our mentality is, you, I'll go do it on my own. (laughs) (laughs) That's a good play, I'll show you. Um... I got rejected for summer stage, and I thought to myself, whatever, this is a good play, it's a weird play, but it's a good play, and I know it's a good play, here's 95 reasons why. I did a Kickstarter for it, and I kickstarted Fever Dream for $900 to do marketing, getting a space, that's it. So we were on the definition of a shoestring budget. We had nothing. We had $900 for everything. So, I started looking around. I looked at churches. Will had already scored the black box at Edison. At our, at our old high school, he'd already scored that. So that's To do anything. his play that summer. Mm-hmm. And I resent him for it. No, I'm fine. But he already scored the place that I was thinking of, because we our plays were going to be going up at right about the same time. So he was going to be using that space for rehearsals and all that jazz. Yeah, um, you had overlapping rehearsal schedules. Yes, we had lots of overlapping rehearsal schedules. So I think his rehearsals happened, and then immediately afterwards people would vacate, and they could high-five my actors on the way in. Which made it interesting because you shared cast members. We did share a couple of cast members as well, yes. So some people were at our house for like six hours, and I am really sorry to all those people. <laughs> right? I started looking everywhere, 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 everywhere. To my immense benefit, I am a homosexual. Yay, in the theater world. So I went to the Equality Center in Tulsa. The Equality Center is an LGBT plus location for people to find resources 
uh, buy rainbow flags, consult with people who need to get help. And they um, have an art gallery. And they have an event space. The event space was too expensive, the art gallery's too expensive. In the back, they have a warehouse where they store anything they have for like Pride Parade and, and stuff like that. And I said, hey, so <laughs> you don't have anything stored there right now. So you've got this big empty warehouse. When you hear warehouse, you're thinking Raiders of the Lost Ark. It's much smaller than that. I said, hey, can I rent the warehouse? And they said, really? No one has ever rented the warehouse. And I said, then can you give me a discount to rent the warehouse? And they said, all right, because they knew me and because I have my minority status and used it. And you'd already raised money for the youth center. I had already raised money for the youth center, so they knew that I had done good work there. They knew that I was using the proceeds for this show to donate to NAMI, which is the National Alliance for Mental Illness. And I was like, I'm only needed for a weekend. You don't have anything planned there. I will work around your schedule. I will get everything in and out. Please. And they said yes. And you were the first person to ever produce a play there. Mm -hmm. And after that, I think they started to work on... They started to work on getting an actual theater in there. It is a concrete floor, concrete wall, not great audio, no light system to speak of, space. But I am over the moon. As a plus, they loaned us chairs. Which was like, ah! Because chair rental is so expensive. And hauling chairs across town from a church or whatever is such a pain. We had to borrow some from other places. We borrowed some from my school. We borrowed some from your school. We borrowed some from church. We snagged wherever we could. But they loaned us about half the chairs that we needed. And that was an immense, immense nicety on their part. I borrowed set pieces from my high school. I knew exactly what I wanted them to look like. And I knew that they had them. So I contacted and I was like, hey, Will is not using these for his show. um, Which is going up in your in your black box space. Can I borrow them? And my old theater teacher was like, will you destroy them? And I was like, I will not. And she was like, okay. So she loaned them to me for me because she loves me. Thank you, Mrs. Harrington. She's loaned us so much She's loaned us so many things over the years because we keep producing shows and she believes in local theater. You know, God bless. We have the set. We have the space. We have the chairs. We almost have the set. I will say that. I get the cast together. We have the big parts of the set. Next is casting. I wrote these roles in this show with specific people in mind. And then auditions happened. A lot of the people that I wrote in mind couldn't do it for one reason or another. Couldn't do the part that I wrote for them. Or they came to auditions and read much better for a different part. Say something about that for people who have... My brother and I have a long-standing agreement that is still in play today. Haha, fun. That... We write a role for each other in every single play that we write because we're both actors as well as writers and we're both kind of unusual looking so we write roles for each other that we know the other one will have fun playing. I wrote the role, one of the main character roles for him, I wrote the role of Kinnear for my brother and then he was producing a show and he couldn't do it. And he was directing. And he was directing, he was producing and directing his own original work as well with the overlapping rehearsal schedules I already mentioned so he couldn't do it. And this show that he was writing, directing, producing was very stressful for him. And I said, listen, you're going to be under a lot of stress with your show. How would you like a role in my show? So that way you can still act in my show. You only need to know one line. You can just go up on stage and have a de-stressor. And he missed a lot of rehearsals. He did miss 
lot of rehearsals for, for this role because I trusted him, I flung myself into the sun and said, I trust you, my little brother. It's not something I would recommend to anyone starting out. If someone says I have to miss half your rehearsals, say, okay, then I'm not casting you in my show. This was an exceptional thing where it was a part that didn't have a lot of lines to memorize and it was an actor who I trust with my life. Um, so he got it. And he killed it. He nailed it. God, he was so good. Um, but that doesn't happen often. Right. So do not recommend. Do not recommend. So I'm cast hat guy at this point. I have Wilson and Kinnear that I still need to cast. So a guy comes to my auditions and he's in Will's play and he says, hey, do you want me to be in your play too? And I was like, sure, audition. And he was funny and he was very like, whoa, dude, man, far out. I was like, I think you can play this stoner character that I've got going on for Kinnear. I couldn't have had anyone better in that part at that point in my life. And then I had to cast Wilson. At that point in time, I was dating someone who is now my fiance. We had been dating for, gosh, six months maybe. And they came to auditions and they auditioned for my brother's show and were awesome. They got cast, and then they auditioned for my show, and they were just so good. And I was extremely in love, and I was thinking, oh, do I really want to do this? Do I want to cast my partner in the main role? I am willing to take this risk because I think they really nailed the audition, and I know that I will be able to work with them a lot to make sure that it's going to be a good show. Okay. I'm taking this risk. And they were like, all right, let's take it on. And I cast them in the other main role, and they were awesome! They were awesome! And I say this with years of hindsight. We've been dating for six months, and we've been dating for almost five years now. And I think you can say as well that they were awesome. Beck was amazing. Beck was so good at this. Um, and they actually still use that monologue from the opening of Act 2 for every audition now. Really? They still use that monologue. That's so cool. And that part was not written for them. That part was written for my friend, James Whitson, who I still hold an immense fond regard. But James Whitson came to auditions and knocked it out of the park for Miriam Webster. And I thought, oh no, I wrote this main character for you, but you're so much better as the dictionary. He was adorable. He made it his own. He really did. He, he took that part that I had written for a massive dude, a massive serious dude, and turn it into this nervous, bookish, sweet dictionary. Little bow tie wearing. Little bow tie, little check jacket. He was wonderful. <laughs> um, I've got, and I already told you earlier that the guy who read for the author for my first two readings also got cast as the author. He was basically memorized by the time we got to first rehearsal. <laughs> Just at the auditions, um, my friend Michaela came to audition, and I have since cast Michaela in every show that I have produced. She is consistently good, but I cast her as symptoms, and this was the first time that Michaela had, I think it was the first time she'd been cast in a major role in a production. And it was this bright, bubbly, happy sun hat wearing, cute little dress, oh, fun, talk like this kind of character. Which is Michaela. Which is, which is Michaela as a person, so she was able to, she was able to really do very well with that. And then I had Audience, and my uh, friend Lorianna, now my friend Lorianna, then I didn't know her very well came to auditions and was this perfect oh this uh, I'm just too I can't with this whatever she just came in and I had no idea that she was able to do that because I'd seen her at 
school, I was out of school then, but I had re- remembered her as an underclassman at my high school, and she was so shy, and I thought, what are you doing here? And then she was awesome, and I was like, now I see what you're doing here, come be in my play. <laughs> I think she was actually auditioning for Will's show, and I poached her. Yeah, you did, didn't you? I couldn't find a space to hold auditions, because I didn't want to hold auditions in my living room. I felt like that was unprofessional. So, Will already had an audition space reserved, the high school black box again, and I said, hey, can I just glom on to your auditions, and we can just share? And he was like, yes. So, after all the auditions were through, he and I sat down together and wrote down who all we wanted, and traded, and pushed note cards back and forth, and... The, act, out. the actors will never know. The happened. actors will never know who our original casts were. And I can't remember either. Because we both ended up with exactly the cast that we needed. James Winston was in both of our shows. Uh, Richard, who played um, Kinnear in mine, was in both of our shows. And Beck was in both of our shows. So, the thing is cast. We start doing rehearsals. I don't want to gloss over this part because it is important. But I'm figuring you're going to have an actual episode about doing rehearsals. Um, I have the benefit of having been directed a lot and having been raised by a director. So, I w- I've... And you've directed a lot. And I, I, but at that point, I had not. Well, you directed at school. Some, yeah. yeah. But mostly I had the benefit of being able to mimic people and knowing what notes should look like. I am so, so, so picky about my work. I have an idea in mind of what it looks like, and it's getting there hell or high water. That is not to say that I don't give my actors breathing room as well. I make sure that they can find their own place, but... I have a physical look in my mind, but not a vocal look, if that makes sense. Do you collaborate with your actors? I do. Yes, of course I do. I'll give you an example of collaboration. It is my favorite note to give, and I give this note without fail every show I direct. And the note is, be be funny. funny. And my actors hate the note, be funny, because I'll say, be funny, you know, ha ha. And they're like, why do you give me this note? It's pointless. And my thinking is, it always works out always works out so I'm sorry to my actors that I've done this to but it always works out because you know what funny is you know what is funny to you you know what makes other people laugh so when I say be funny it forces them to search inside themselves for how they would make this funny and it makes it more true to the actual person playing the role and therefore makes it better your brother told the same exact story Mm -hmm. be funny It's a great note! I grew up with a built-in best friend in my sibling. Um, My my other sibling as well. I love my sister as well, but she and I didn't do much um, theater together, and I did a lot of theater with my brother. We are always trying to get to try to be funnier than the other person, so we grew up thinking critically about what is funny because we're so competitive with each other. Thinking, how can this be funny? How can I make this funny? How can I make this stranger laugh harder than my brother made this stranger laugh. We had critical thinking in, in comedy growing up. So, now you've got your cast. I've got my cast. I'm doing rehearsals. I've got my space. I'm going to kind of gloss over rehearsals, and I'm just going to say they were good. Be funny. Be funny. Be funny. I will say that even with rehearsals, things don't work out like they should. I was this close to replacing one of my leads at one point because... He just didn't know his lines. And I don't think he believed me until he saw me do a monologue. And he was like, oh no, she will actually replace me. And then he learned his lines. But there was one scene that he just couldn't wrap his mouth around. I don't know why. He just could not.
Shakespeare's sexuality conversation. I'm so, so sad, but we had to cut it. And that happens. If there's a scene in your original work that your actor and you are literally days away from opening and you still just, they just still can't wrap themselves around it, you cut it. There's not time. So we get in the space. We've got this pyramid and we've got our chairs. And we don't have any lights. And I said to myself, well, I've still got some money left over. So we called Wolf Audio, who does a lot of theater stuff in Tulsa. Um, and they knew my mom and they knew me at that point. So I called them and I said, hey, we need a lighting rig. And they gave me a little bit of a discount because, again, use your connections when you are producing original work. If there's ever time to call in favors, it is when you are producing an original work. To get your discounts, if you have your shoestring budget and you only have so much money, tell them that. Tell them you are producing something, proceeds are going towards charity, that always helped, and, you know, tell them we're friends. We're friends, right? We're friends. Lay out your sob story. You have no pride at this point. There's no pride in you at this point. There's gay pride. Yeah, use that to get his face. <laughs> <laughs> they gave me a discount on a lighting room, and I think we ended up paying 500 for that. It was that, less than that, I think. No, that was the biggest expense that we was had. Was it? Okay. Yeah. Much less than it would have been for anywhere else. Because God he brought bless. in lighting towers and he brought in like quality stuff, six or, se six or seven yeah. lights and Light mixing board, board and yeah. yeah, all kinds of good stuff. And he set so, it up for us. He set it up and he took it down and yeah, God bless. He did. He did. I didn't recognize that at the time how much he was doing that because I hadn't been in the theater world for very long. But as I got older, I was like, you really did a young playwright a lot of favors. We have the space, we have the lights, we have almost all the set. This is my favorite part. We get our pyramid set up, we have our chairs set on the pyramid for people to sit on, and we have our minor props, we have our, our rolling papers and our doctor's coats and our clipboard and everything we need. We get the set set up and I was like, this doesn't look anything like an existentialist nightmare. So I told my cast, I told them, go home pick out some stuff. But if it's books, if it's stuffed animals, if it's suitcases, if it's anything, bring it. I asked them to bring things that would be important to their characters and important to them as people. And they, wow, they did good. Yes, they did. They each brought several things and we just propped stuff around this pyramid. So we hung up this artwork, we had open suitcases that had clothes falling out of them, we had the the center gave us their big banner. They gave, they had this big rainbow banner in the background. So we finally got the set. We've got everything all in there. And then it came time for the show. And we marketed, 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 marketed. Oh boy. We used the rest of our budget. We bought some snacks for intermission. And then we used the remaining like $200 to market, 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 market. We print out posters. We print out posters. We talked to the newspaper. We put out postcards. We put out, um, we went to cars and put flyers under the windshields. Yeah, you and the whole cast went out a couple mm -hmm. of different Saturdays. and I called everyone together and I, I called everyone I could find, including the cast, and I said, instead of doing a rehearsal today, we're going to go hang posters. Here are the businesses that will let us do that. I called ahead. Which is a really good idea. Mm -hmm. Yeah, don't just go into a business and assume you can hang a poster. It's super rude. Call ahead. And if you can't call ahead and you happen to be there, before bringing the poster in even, just say, would it be all right if we hung a poster for a play in here? Always have the tape in your car. Do not ask to borrow tape from a small business. That's bad form. Very bad form. 
we went out to Guthrie Green. Remember this, we went out to Guthrie Green, which had a, which is a big park in our town, and it had food trucks, and there was a bunch of people there. And we handed it out to random passerbys. We said, hey, you want to see a play? And we, we gave them a little, a little business card that had a discount coupon on it, where if you came in, we would give you a dollar off intermission. And you, and you had that, we'd give you a dollar off. Opening night comes, and we pack the house. We have to set out two more rows of chairs, which I cried. I really did, because I, I had grown up in kid theater, and I had grown up where the only people coming were going to be your parents. And, you know, of that gigantic high school auditorium, like the first five rows would be have people in them. We packed the house on opening night, and I thought to myself, there's no way that we can keep going like this. We had one weekend run. We had a Saturday, a Saturday, we had a Friday, Saturday, and a Sunday matinee. Sold out every single time. Had to set up rows of chairs every single time. It was amazing. It was amazing. I mean, people really came out for it, and it got very good reviews, actually, as well. But we marketed it as an absurdist play. We marketed it as a comedy. We went out on foot, on social media. We called newspapers. I called in every reporter friend that I knew. And James Watts, bless his soul, put out a few things for us. He's been so supportive of he's been, over the years. He's the theater writer for the Tulsa world. And he's an incredible supporter of local theater and of our family. He really gave me a lot of confidence as a writer to have the actual paper reviewing my stuff. I love James Watts. We ended up being able to donate almost $1,000 to NAMI. We made back our Kickstarter. We ended up being able to donate almost $1,000 to support the destigmatization of mental illness in our country. Can you say something about giving your gate to a charity? And by the way, when I say gate, I mean the money that you make the from ticket sales. So I am bipolar. At the time, I did not know that. At the time, I thought I had just had depression. I had been diagnosed with depression, misdiagnosed with depression, which is fine because I was going through a depressive state. That's what it would have presented as. I was dealing with a lot of really terrible things, both with my brain trying to destroy itself and with the idea that now I was an other. I was an outlier. I was a person who had to go to therapy. Ooh, scary. I was a person who had to take pills. Ooh, scary. And there is a huge amount of stigma towards people with mental illness in this country. So I wrote the author as someone who had survived a suicide attempt, who had to deal with this thing that was happening to them and how much they didn't want to and how they were using writing as a form of therapy almost. So I wrote this character who was me. I mean, in the truest sense, me. And I thought, I don't need this money. I am 19 years old. I don't need this money right now. I was living with my parents. And I thought to myself, I have support from my family. I have support from my partner. I have support from my friends and my brother and my family and these actors and my community. I have all this support. I don't need a thousand dollars. But there are people out there who do. So I wanted to make sure it made a difference for people who were actually featured in the show. So I donated to Nami, who is, I think, doing the best work of um, charities that are assisting with mental health right now. Mental Health Association actually helped promote the show mm -hmm. some, mm -hmm. because you had made it clear that you were donating the proceeds to a good, a good organization. Yeah. 
What are your final thoughts on having produced that show? It's hard. I'm not going to sugarcoat it and say that producing a show is fun all the time. Because it's not. You're going to have fights with your actors. You're going to make friends. You're going to lose friends. You're going to learn how to talk to people. And you're going to learn when you're being too picky. And you're going to learn when you're not being picky enough. And you're going to learn who is a good actor and a bad person. And you're going to learn who's a, a great friend and not a really good actor. You're going to learn a lot. And it's going to be very hard. And if you put that work in when the lights come up on the set that you designed with people reading the words that you wrote in a packed house it's so worth it every lost hour of sleep every lost second of not being able to do what you wanted to do that day every moment of having to deal with this difficulty is going to be worth it every time every time don't only entrust your work to other people. If your stuff gets accepted into competitions and it gets directed by and produced by other people, that's awesome. And it's also really gratifying to know that other people can offer an external validation of you as a writer. Also, produce your own stuff at least once. Because you're going to learn a lot. You're going to be a better person for it. Thanks to Emily Adams for letting me ride along on her road trip to Washington, D.C. Thank you, baby. I love you. Check out my blog at sallypal.com. Be sure to share with your friends and anyone you think might be interested. Also, you can find Sally Pal on iTunes, SoundCloud, and my website, sallypal.com. We'll soon be on Stitcher as well. Look for my posts on Twitter and Facebook, and be sure to let me know how you feel about Sally Pal the blog or Sally Pal the podcast. If you like it, press the like button. And if you really like it, please do share and help me get the word out. All the performances you've seen on stage once lived only in someone's head. Thank you so much for listening. The podcast and blog will benefit with your ideas. You can look forward to a new podcast every Monday night concerning producing original work for the stage. Next week, I'll be posting a phone interview with Bob Odell. We'll talk about his very rich history with American Theatre Company. Until then. Every day I gotta stop for a minute.